Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. This week I am joined by Dr. David Cunnington. David Cunnington is a sleep physician based in East Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. Now I've wanted to have David on the podcast for a long time, mainly because David is the first sleep physician that we've had on the podcast and I really wanted to talk to David because back in about 2014, David actually interviewed me for one of my very first podcasts as a guest um, on his own one on the Sleep Hub where himself and Dr. Moira talk about everything related to sleep. So it's well worth going over and checking out David's podcast after you listen to this one first. Um, David is quite an interesting character. Um, he, we talk a lot about how he got into medicine, sleep medicine, what inspired him to be a doctor, some of the things he studied throughout his life, his work with the uh, Indian medical uh, professionals. He's been traveling back and forth to India for a long time. Um, his ability to read and write Sanskrit, plus many, many more things. We also even discuss some aspects of sleep, and we talk about technologies, um, improvements and things like insomnia, what research David is currently doing, what he's involved in, and we also kind of speculate on maybe some new ways to measure sleep or what's coming in the future as well. So uh, definitely a very interesting episode, even if you're not into sleep, just an interesting character to listen to. Now, as always, you can contact me at Ian Dunican at sleepforperformance.com.au. You can follow us on Twitter at sleepforperform, on Instagram, sleepforperform as well. And we have the Facebook page, uh, Sleep for Performance, where you can get some info there as well. As always, you can go to a central repository, which is our Sleep for Performance, the number four website, where you can find all of this information and more there as well. So keep an eye on Sleep for Performance. And just a word on Sleep for Performance, you may see some changes um, coming up in the next few months. We're going to be doing some co-branding with our sister slash partner organization, Melius Consulting, which is basically the business arm of what we do. So you will see some co-branding of Sleep for Performance and Melius Consulting and of Melius Consulting on Sleep for Performance. So that will be a slight change. Don't forget as well, we have a newsletter that comes out every month, so you do not miss anything that gets... Um, released, whether it be blogs, podcasts, any other information as well, or just general info on what's happening in the scientific community. We put it all in there in relation to sleep for performance. It's a very short um, newsletter, so it's not going to be the life and times of uh, Grizzly Adams. You're not going to spend hours reading it. Plus, if you sign up for the email, uh, uh, excuse me, if you sign up for our newsletter and give us your email, we promise, we guarantee you, we will not spam you. We will only send you an email with a link to the newsletter at the end of the month. Okay, so we will not spam you and we do not give your email to any other third party either for marketing purposes. I guarantee that. If that happens, I will shut down the whole business um, of sleep for performance because nothing drives me more crazy than getting emails or having my details passed on. So I promise you, we will not do that. Okay, after that short guarantee of the your information and security, we're going to get into this episode with Dr. David Cunnington. Exercise and diet are well established in society as two pillars for optimizing our health. However, both are supported by a foundation that is often forgotten, yet even more integral to our health, namely sleep. The Sleep Recovery Specialist course is an innovative online education experience that provides an in-depth knowledge base, important sleep assessment tools, and a wide range of effective strategies for supporting clients to improve their sleep habits and behaviors. Improve your sense of happiness and well-being, daily energy and alertness, recovery from physical training. 
reduce risk of obesity and diabetes, and reduce your appetite and sweet cravings. Achieve all of this and more. For further information and to enroll online, please visit www.nordicfitnesseducationblog.com. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Mark Bubbs, and I'm excited to announce my new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That is Revolutionizing Sports, is available for pre-order right now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, and local booksellers before its release on May 24th. Peak is a groundbreaking book exploring the fundamentals of high performance, not the fads, the importance of consistency, not extreme effort, and the value of patience, not rapid transformation. Peak explores the leading experts, such as Dr. Ian Dudekin, who are influencing the top performers in sports on how to achieve world-class success. What are performance professionals saying about Peak? Dr. Rocco Monto, orthopedic surgeon, Team USA physician, and author of The Fountain says, Peak is a masterpiece of nutritional science from one of the world's leading authorities of athletic health and performance. It's a fantastic resource that provides a roadmap to reaching true wellness. Kelly Olenek, forward for the NBA's Miami Heat, says, A must-read for athletes and everyone alike. Peak is an immeasurable tool to becoming the best you can be. And Dr. Fergus Connolly, PhD, performance expert and author of Game Changer and 59 Lessons, says, Peak is one of the most impressive and detailed books on applied sports science ever published. A must-have for any practitioner in performance. Regardless if you're trying to improve your physique, propel your endurance performance, or improve your team's record, Peak is about being an expert in the fundamentals and assumes that while top athletes are born, they can also be made. Pick up your copy of Peak today. Dr. David Cunnington, how are you? Very good, thank you. So, uh, David, you have kindly allowed me to record this podcast in your office on this unusually warm uh, Melbourne evening which is unusual for this time of the year. Uh, you don't come here often enough, are you? you know, weather's always good in Melbourne. I'm here every second week there, but I know, <laughs> I know that's generally pissing me in. <laughs> has been all over the winter. It must be the weeks in between that you're missing. <laughs> it's funny because um, I was here two weeks ago and it was like 23, 24, around the time of the Melbourne Marathon and Half Marathon. And so then I left and I believe it was pissing rain here on Sunday. And then I come in last night and it's like 22, 23 and now it's 30 today. So... Maybe I'm a good weather charm, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Maybe I'm bringing it in. So I'm recording here with David in his office here in East Melbourne. Um, that's Melbourne, Australia. For any Americans listening, I'm Melbourne, Florida. Some people go, are oh, you going to Melbourne in Florida? Some of my American friends but no, it's actually in Australia. And David, you are a sleep physician. Yeah. So we actually have another sleep physician on the podcast. What would you, or how would you describe what a sleep physician does? So sleep physicians do a range of different things, but really my main role is working clinically with patients and patients with a whole range of different sleep disorders. Um, how sleep physicians practice exactly their patient mix does differ a bit from country to country. Just historically in Australia, sleep medicine has really evolved out of the pulmonary medicine departments. So most Australian sleep physicians are sort of respirologists or pulmonologists first and then do some sleep medicine training on top of that. A bit different to North America, where sleep medicine sometimes sits in the psychiatry department, sometimes it sits in the neurology department, and some of the European countries it sits in neurology and psychiatry 
as well. Um, I've always been interested in sleep, so as part of my training, once I'd finished my sleep fellowship in Australia, I went over to Boston, was lucky enough to do some uh, postgraduate training at Harvard, um, you know, fell in with a couple of really interesting people who were doing some neurology work, some circadian rhythm work, some psychiatry work, and really caught the sleep bug. Yeah. So that's now my sort of, you know, been back in Australia 17 years, you know, my day-to-day practice is just seeing people with any sort of sleep problem and it is literally anything and everything mm. you get a lot of um, referrals from psychiatrists that sort of co-manage the sleep components of people's mental health problems um, i get referrals from general practice people with snoring sleep apnea but also insomnia it's, that's a particular interest of mine so i do get a bit of a disproportionate referral base of people with insomnia and, you know, because I can't be seeing patients 24-7 because it's hard work, you know, working face-to-face with patients and sorting out their problems. I also do a lot of teaching, mentoring, and we do some research as well out of the practice. So pretty busy across the board. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that's one of the fortuitous things about sleep medicine, if you're on the medical side, is I don't have to be up at night. It's the scientists that get to be the ones that are up at night. So it's one of the few medical specialties where I'm pretty much Monday to Friday, nine to five. That's my dirty secret is I don't have to do weekends or after hours or be on call. Oh, David, I fully agree. When people said to me, oh, after your PhD, wouldn't you go into, why didn't you go into research? Wouldn't that be great? I'm like, in the back of my head, I was like, well, number one, before we even talk about money or trying to get funding or the difficulties of starting off sort of midlife into research, one was imagine running your own experiments overnight, weekends. I was like, eh, eh, that is not happening. I'm like you, I want Monday to Friday and have a bit of a life. So I, I applaud you there and I'll join your camp on that one. So David, um, so that's a pretty broad range of things that you do. Um, let's just reverse it back a bit. So you, you are from Australia originally. Um, and so where did you grow up here in Australia? So I'm Melbourne born and bred. That's why, that's why I like the Melbourne weather. It likes Melbourne weather because it keeps changing. So my yeah. wife is actually from Warrnambool here in Victoria. So she's the opposite. She was like, the minute I can get to a warm place, I'll go. So she went to uni up in northern New South Wales. And then uh, we've been in Perth. But every time we come over, we're like, nah, the weather in Perth. So we keep getting dragged back because of the weather. But um, my question was, um, I suppose, growing up in Melbourne, did you always want to be a doctor? Or was it always something you wanted to do as a kid? No, basically. No. So I was always good at maths and physics. And still, that's a bit my bent. I'm a bit sort of numbers and how does it work and physiology and get under the hood. You know, that's still my nature. So I wanted to be an accountant. (laughs) My father gave me some wise counsel. He basically said, you'll just help other people make lots of money as an accountant. I said, yeah, I'm not that interested in that. So medicine, you know, is something that combines that science, but working with people. Mm. And then uh, when I was in high school, I lived in Fiji for a couple of years and went to school there. And there was another doctor who was an Australian doctor and his family in Latoka, the city we were living in. And he really just was an inspiration to me. So just an old school general physician who was head of the medicine at the Latoka General Hospital. You know, just I really looked up to him and I just thought that is just an amazing job that he does. And so that was 13 at the time, I remember. And that was it. I'm like, I want to do what, what he does. You want to be a doctor? Yeah, I want so to be a doctor. Time, did you want to just go into like general practice? Did you think about, you know, any sort of speciality? Or were you just like, I want to be just a doctor? Like, I want to be anything? Yeah, so, so he was an adult general physician. 
So, you know, around the Department of Medicine, you know, anything sort of non-surgical that people had that came to the hospital, he'd deal with it. The complex sort of stuff, he'd yeah, yeah. take it on. Yeah, that was that was me. So like, like, yeah, that, that type of thing. And just life's a strange thing. But it turns out he's now back in Melbourne and he's got a particular interest in chronic fatigue. Mm. And he and I co-manage a large number of patients because people with chronic fatigue get sleep problems and they get insomnia, they get excessive yeah, sleepiness, yeah. they get circadian rhythm disturbance. And so I'll manage all of that side of their problems and he manages more of the fatigue side of their problems. And so we actually collaborate together and work together. So uh, obviously you've, you've told him how much of an influence he was on you as a young teenage boy. Did, did he, how did he respond to that? He's a pretty humble guy. Yeah. So, so he, you know, he's, I'm sure, a bit chuffed, I hope, a bit, yeah, yeah, a yeah. bit chuffed. But you know, he's, I've got to tell you, he's quite an inspirational physician and there's lots of Melbourne-based doctors who've trained under him at various hospitals and, um, you know, w would be similarly inspired. Yeah. It's an interesting kind of comment, isn't it, or a point that you make, because um, we often forget someone who's going about our day-to-day -day job or a task that we're doing or even how we lead our life about the effect we may have on the people around us, whether it be positive or negative. So it's really interesting about how we, how we lead our life, not just for ourselves, but what people see around that and how you might, you know, how I might maybe inspire somebody to, you know, do what I do or you yep. inspire somebody else or we kind of feed that energy into the into the overall human system, so to speak. So it's, a, it's an interesting point about how we lead our life and, and how we can influence others to do other, other great work. So yep. it's pretty interesting. So you, you were 13, you had that experience, you wanted to be a doctor. Did that kind of feel insubstantial at high school? Were you determined to get to there? Or did you stray from the path and... No, that was that was it. Apart apart from a minor deviation, I had a bad week, I reckon, in sometime in year eleven, and decided I was going to quit school, take up a job as a food technologist at the local cannery, yeah. where I was driving forklifts <laughs> over the, the school holidays. <laughs> You were just pissed off. I was just, I was just pissed off. And my physics teacher, Mr. Snow, I still remember, who's another quite inspirational sort of person, just took me aside and said, David, you, you could do this food technologist gig, but, you know, just hang in there. You, yeah, yeah. You, you'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so, so for people who want to be a sleep physician, um, obviously you got into medicine, so do you have to do a general medical degree first? Is that how it starts? Or do you pick right from the start that you want to be a sleep physician? No, so... Definitely, sleep sleep medicine wasn't on the radar, and to be to be honest, wasn't a specialty really when I was in medical school. So that's the sort of mid to late nineteen eighties yeah. that, that I was in med school, and really sleep medicine wasn't a thing. Um, so I graduated. Um, I met my wife, or my then to be wife, when I was in med school. She was a student nurse. Chris hadn't travelled much, and I did my internship, and then she said, basically, go on travelling. You can come with me. Or not. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went with her. <laughs> so we had a year off, went and lived in London for a year and, uh, you know, had a good time and worked in some of the district general hospitals in London, which gave me a sort of good perspective as well of a different healthcare system. And yeah. at that stage, I thought I actually wanted to do surgery. So I did some surgical runs um, at some of these hospitals in London. Jeez. And the NHS, it's got good and bad to it. But in those days, and that was the early 1990s, it was pretty much... You know, I had one year's experience as a doctor and I was the surgical person on call in the hospital and someone needed a major um, bowel surgery in the middle of the night. That was me. Really? And I'd be ringing the surgical consultant on the phone and he'd be like, well, what are you ringing me for, boy? Just get on with it. So I, excuse me, sir, but I've not done this before and I'm not really sure what I should do. Well, if you get into trouble, call me back. Dunk. 
you know, hang, up, hang up the phone. I've got them all. What do we do next? <laughs> Literally, I'd be calling them back a bit later going, right, I've got them open. I think this is the problem. Well, get on with it then. <laughs> the patient's horrified. I don't listen to this. Going, what? And so that cured me of my sort of desire to do surgery, largely. I think I still, I still twitch at the thought of, you know, that, that type of thing. And so... Uh, then because of my sort of love of maths, physics, complicated things, you know, respiratory medicine was really an interest yeah. for me because you can combine the whole sort of maths, physics thing, you know, exercise science, VO2 yeah. max, anaerobic thresholds, you know, all of that type of stuff. And then once I got into respiratory medicine, started to see a bit of this sleep stuff. And then I was like, oh, that's even cool, you know, even more cool than the respiratory medicine because you get to measure all this stuff to do with sleep, you know, yeah. you know. You know what you do for a sleep study, but in in a, in a digital sense, a sleep study is you measure a minimum of 16 channels at 256 samples per second for a minimum of eight hours. So you get millions of data points yeah, that you yeah. can do stuff with. Yeah. You can run through mathematical computations and you can look at patterns. And sometimes in clinical practice, we just dumb it down too much to a single number. But really, it's an exquisite sort of physiology experiment that we're doing in an N of one mm. to take someone's clinical symptoms, look ex very high detail at their physiology during sleep. And when someone's asleep, it unmasks some of their underlying physiology. And then you get to match that physiology to their symptoms and try and sort of meld those two together to plan a way forward. Yeah. So it's just a great way of bringing together that maths, physics, physiology, plus then the human side of it. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way of articulating because I never told all like that. I get so many, so many different things happening at once and you're trying to make a judgment, you know, of it. And it is quite interesting for, for anybody who hasn't seen a, a, a classic sort of polysomnography sleep study. When you sit in a laboratory as a technician or as a researcher or as a medical professional looking at that data, you're right, it is kind of, like I remember the first, the first time I ran um, a PSG study, it was actually with elite rugby players. And uh, it's quite interesting because they're very different than normal population. And some of these guys were playing for the Wallabies, some of them were playing for like the Super Rugby team. But you're sitting there looking at the data, and you kind of go to yourself, "This is like when in the Matrix when he's like, I can just look at all the numbers and I can see what's happening." And so there's this kind of people who are like, "Oh, you haven't got the camera on. What's happening?" I'm like, "He's asleep. He's going into REM, and you have four or five screens, and you feel like this kind of super nerd because you're looking at everything, going, that's happening there, that's happening there. He's had an arousal. He's had this. His leg is twitching. His left, you know, his yeah. chin is doing this. And you start looking at all the data from the signals, not from the person, mm -hmm. because you can't actually see them. And it is kind of quite cool. And then, like you say, you can drill down or look at the amplitude of waves, what's coming from different things or all these different data points. You're right. It is um, it is quite cool. I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah. And then looking back, so that's in the recording sort of stuff. And then when you get a chance to page back through it, you know, in the light of day, for me, it's like reading a book. It's a story. So a sleep study, it's not something to just sample a bit here and a bit there. It's you flick through the whole thing and things unfold and they progress and you get a sense of, ah, this should be coming next. Oh, but it doesn't. I wonder why that didn't come next. And ah, now it's come now. What does that mean? What's going on? And so it really is, it really, that, that data tells a story. And yeah, that's one of the things I really like about it. Yeah. Do, do you think that... Um this overnight polysomnography that we typically do to diagnose somebody with a sleep disorder, is a really good measure of analysing somebody's sleep? Or is there something better we can do to work out what person's, a person's sleep is? So, so whilst sleep studies are cool, love sleep studies, gives me heaps of data, 
there's so much it doesn't measure and so many questions it doesn't answer. Because you would have had this experience as well in either athletes that you work with or other people that you work with where the symptoms are very significant. There's really significant sleep symptoms either of feeling awake or of feeling sleepy during the day. But you look at the sleep study data and you go, oh, actually it looks pretty normal. There's not a whole lot going on. And there's this absolute disconnect between what someone's experiencing and what you see physiologically. Now, it doesn't mean the person's not experiencing that because it's real. Um, it's just we're probably not measuring the right thing. And so, you know, whilst we're in one respect trying to dumb things down and get to less and less senses and simpler signals, you know, if you think about consumer activity trackers or smartwatches or some of the other new technologies to try to pick wake and sleep very simply and inobtrusively. But in essence, if our very complex test still doesn't map well to what people are experiencing, there's probably more that we're missing. Yeah. And then if we're going the other way and actually trying to dumb it down, we're probably going to miss even more. Because, you know, what these activity trackers can measure, they can pretty pretty well, you know, I saw an email exchange today that you're involved with, you know, many different devices can track reasonably well whether we're awake or asleep. Mm. They're not too far off in that regards. But that's totally different to why am I not feeling the way I wish to feel. That's just a total other thing altogether. Yeah. So why, why do you think it is, David, that some people, and this, this goes, goes kind of two ways, you get somebody who comes into the laboratory, they sleep really well, they wake up the next morning and go, that was a terrible night's sleep. You actually bring them back into the technician room and you, you go back through a few of these you know, pans of the, of, the, um, of the screen. You go, look, you slept all of this time, here's like the hypnogram, yeah, this amount of RAM, blah, blah, like just generally, it's got to be scored, but, you know, it looks pretty good. And you were actually asleep for eight and a half hours. And the person goes, I don't believe that. I don't trust that. That machine is bullshit. I feel like crap. I only slept for about four hours. I actually had my eyes closed, but I was awake. They don't seem to understand what EOG does. Yep. So you got that happening. Then you have the other, the opposite happening where people are sleeping four or five hours. They're probably at significant risk the next day. And they go, oh, that was actually a good night's sleep. Yeah. So how do you... How do you kind of, I suppose, work with somebody that's got those completely opposite subjective feelings of what their actual sleep is, and how do you try to align those? Right, so they're just perfect examples of how, even though sleep studies are really detailed, they just don't capture that different domain, which is how does it feel, yeah. which to me is a totally different domain altogether. So when I think about sleep, one of the, you know, if I'm trying to explain to to patients about sleep, one of the things I talk about is there's many different ways of looking at sleep. You can think about it as how does it feel to the person who's sleeping versus how does it look to the person who might be sleeping next to them. Lots yeah. of real world examples where those things don't line up. The person who's sleeping might just say, I don't know, I'm out to it, I sleep pretty good. And the person who's watching goes, no, you thrash around all night and you're noisy and you shout out and you're doing all these things. And then I think of it physiologically. So if you think of what a sleep study is, really it's electrophysiology. So measuring microvolt electrical signals of brain cells. So how many brain cells are depolarizing at approximately the same time to then give you a waveform. And then in 1968, a whole lot of middle-aged guys sat around a table and categorized sleep into four bins, non-REM one, two, three, four, and REM. Well, actually five bins, six bins if you count wake. And we haven't changed that since 1968, apart from dropping stage four and 
and joining it together with calling it N3. Mm. What other areas of medicine have we made no changes in 51 years, apart from how we artificially categorise sleep? So this whole electrical measurement of sleep looks pretty fancy and stuff, and I'm sure we miss a whole lot. Because that's what we will be saying to the patient, hey, look, based on this electrical classification system we've got, you're wrong. We're, we're right. But the patient's saying, no, you're wrong. I'm right. Yeah. And an observer may well say something entirely different. Yeah. And then the fourth way of looking at it for me, which is relevant in the sort of work you do in fatigue management or athletes, is the outcome. Who cares how it feels? Does it work? Are you feeling restored? Are you fit for duty? Is your recovery there? Is your performance there? Because mm. in insomnia management, you know, it's really, that's really important because largely in insomnia management, almost all the work I do with CBT or other things is trying to disconnect people from how sleep feels to how it works. Because yeah. when someone's coming to see me with insomnia, they're walking in the door wanting more minutes of sleep, sleep to feel deeper, to have less awareness of things. I'm wanting them to function well and have good physical and mental health during the day. So we've almost got these two different goals. Yeah, yeah. And part of the work I'm doing is trying to realign their goals to the functional outcome so that they're pretty much, you know what, sleep may not feel the way I wish it to feel, but it's working okay. I'm just moving forward. I'm getting on with life. Yeah. And do you think that's an issue? Because I find that talking to some people after you assess their sleep objectively, would that say a wrist-worn actigraphy device or with a diary or some questionnaires or a combination of all of them, they still kind of go, oh, yeah, but I'm not getting enough sleep and I feel like crap. And, and do you find that some people like want to have an issue? They want to have like an insomnia, they want to be a poor sleeper and then have this kind of bravado that, yeah, it's really bad, it's really crap and I feel like crap and, you know, I get by but I, I do what I have to do. So it's like this... But then when you sit down and look at it without looking at the person, you will go, actually, that person's a pretty good sleeper. I don't know what... And then when you marry her with the person, you kind of go to yourself, well, what are they bitching about here? Because it's pretty oh, good. Right. So then often sleep's the tangible thing. And this is what I come across in clinical practice a lot. So the thing we can put our finger on most readily is, you know, how many times I woke up at night? How many minutes of sleep did I miss out on? How many minutes of sleep did I get? And so it cops the blame. Because the stuff yeah. that's harder to measure is, well, how, you know, how sort of how much of an existential crisis have I got about the fact I don't like my job, um, my relationships, shit, my life's in the toilet, financially I'm under stress, I'm working too hard, I'm not eating well, I don't have good physical fitness. All of that stuff you can't measure and you can't put your finger on. But arguably for a lot of people I see, it's all of that and they're waking a few times at night and it's like, if only I wasn't waking at night, my life would be fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I spoke at an addiction conference earlier this year and was a bit loose with my language, but basically said, you know, people think their life's in the toilet because they're not sleeping well, but in actual fact, they're often not sleeping well because their life's in the toilet. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and sometimes that's people are coming to see me going, just fix my sleep. And I'm just like, you know what, this ain't a sleep problem, but it sleeps because it's that measurable thing it's what's copping the blame. That's an interesting uh, point there, David, because a lot of people, if you look at it, sort of probably Australian trends, oh, people getting sort of bigger, fatter, sicker, you know, probably people binge drinking, you know, less people smoking, obviously, but people binge drinking, BMI's gone up, type 2 diabetes, all these other metabolic conditions gone up. Do you think there's a relationship with that then? Because people are probably are so unhealthy during the day, is that then 
is that that precursor to having poor sleep? Is is their low energy or their poor their poor energy the next day not a result of sleep, but as, as a result of what they're doing during the day, and they're not able to recover from it? Right. So, exactly. And a nice example of that: some of the Sleep Health Foundation surveys that have been done the last sort of five years or so, you know, showing around forty percent of Australians report either non-restorative sleep or feeling more tired than they'd expect or being dissatisfied with their sleep. But if you look at the self-reported sleep length in that cohort, it's seven hours and 20 minutes of sleep on average per night. Now, at the same time, there's that really nice work Andy Beale did um, based in Mozambique, looking at sleep in both the urban community in Mozambique and villages in Mozambique, showing that the average sleep in those two communities in Mozambique was seven hours and 20 minutes. They don't have a word in their language for I'm feeling tired or I have insomnia. They're not bitching about feeling tired all the time. And so what is it about a modern Australian society that means 40% of us are saying I'm more tired than I need to be? People in Mozambique sleep in the same amount of hours. No one's saying I'm more tired than I need to be. Is it a sleep problem? You know, and it may not be a sleep quantity problem because it doesn't look like it. Maybe it's a sleep quality problem, but maybe it's just we expect too much out of ourselves. It's a no self-care, not enough nurturing not enough sort of looking after ourselves in a whole range of different domains. Yeah, I've actually, I'm glad you brought that example because I worked in remote Mozambique on a project mm-hmm. and it's pretty interesting because you might be saying, oh, but they must have better beds and better this. Sleeping environments are, what well, we would classically, I'm using air quotes here, would be crap sleeping environments. You know, you've got five or six people in one room, people cook outside, a lot of people go down to the Zambezi River to, you know, sort of wash on the weekend, wash pots, wash clothes whilst crocodiles are swimming around as well. Um, and they're very jovial people for a lot of people. For people that have very little, they were pretty jovial and pretty friendly when I was there. So I think you're right. I think there's all these other factors. And if you start looking at things like Johan Harry's work around Lost Connections, a book he's written recently, or Sebastian um, Younger's book around tribes, he talks about a lot of this work, about um, people not having a sense of community and all these people being mentally fulfilled, you know, having some physical activity during the day. And maybe potentially... If we get the day right, our night will be right. And so when I work with athletes or industry, we talk a lot about with industry, for example, design your rosters to minimize fatigue as, as low as reasonably practical. Talk about having a caffeine strategy if you've got people who've got poor sleep. Have a referral pathway for sleep disorders. If you're using a technology, how does that integrate in with your business? And whilst performance is a good outcome measure we want to look at there in terms of productivity because it's a business, we also look as well as about reducing the risk and then also to create a kind of a sense of community around people with education and training and providing support around it also. But the other factors that we're starting to look at the last two or three years is the connection with the wellness strategy in the business or the physical activity and also more importantly the last 18 months is the mental health strategy as well. And we've been finding in our consulting work that the mental health strategy typically does not talk to the fatigue management strategy. And so a classic example is in West Australia well, it's, it's great there's a quarter practice for mental health and fly and fly out in Western Australia. If you search that PDF, the word sleep does not appear in it once. Mm-hmm. And there's such a relationship with sleep and mental health. If you look at Russell Foster's work, he's done lots of stuff on the relationship between sleep, schizophrenia, bipolar, and so on. And there is definitely a link. Yeah. And so I think this kind of more holistic viewpoint of it, in terms of an organizational design and our consultancy work, we're definitely starting to look at so is that something that you're starting to push more on yourself as a clinician or? Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's tricky sometimes as a clinician because sometimes that's not what people want to hear. Sometimes people want to hear, look, don't open that Pandora's box. 
I didn't come to yeah. see you for you to sort of pry in, into that area. Just fix my sleep. Yeah. And I go, well, you know what? It's not so much about the sleep and, or all these other things um, interrelate with your sleep or I can't manage the sleep without getting into the weeds and getting and tackling all these other issues. Yeah, it's challenging. Yeah. And I think I think it's interesting because we often, um, you know, we have conversations one-on-one with people in industrial settings and, you know, we work with a sleep physician and we do this sort of a turnkey solution for companies and we sit down and we give, in the consults, we say to people, the solution here is to lose weight. And people get really embarrassed. And it's not nice for us to say it to them. But it's like, fortunately, your BMI is 40. This is causing your sleep apnea, which is causing you to have these fatigue-related events during the day, which is not good for your long-term health. You need to lose X amount. Here's a plan to do it. But I think sometimes by just tackling it head-on is better than sort of sweeping under the carpet because you don't want to offend somebody. It's, I think it's best off to just get it out on the table. Yeah. I think just to get it. Um, when we're talking about uh, assessing sleep, Devin, you, t- you kind of spoke about the limitations of PSG and what we may not be capturing. Where do you see is the next kind of frontier in sleep assessment? Is it going to be in the neuroscience area, the respiratory area? Is it going to be in machine learning from the data we have already? Is it going to be, or even, I don't know, is Boston Dynamic going to come up with some robot <laughs> that pulls their head apart at night? Yeah. What, what do you think is like, as crazy as it might be in your head, you don't like... What do you think it might be? Not based upon anything. <laughs> yeah. So, so the on my wish list is a reliable, unobtrusive, long-term sleep monitor that someone could just wear continuously, that's accurate, and that is able to just over a long period of time give me ideas about their sleep and wake activity patterns. Now, arguably, we've got that already. You know, Actigraphy's been able to deliver that in a research sort of framework. Um, consumer activity trackers, to some extent, do that. But the way they display the data doesn't give me that longitudinal look at how sleep relates to time or sleep length over time. It doesn't give me data disclosure, so I can't get the data out. It's a black box and yeah, a, yeah, a yeah. proprietary algorithm and an app interface or a GUI interface that's pretty, pretty locked down. So I can't actually see what's under the hood. So here's something, if someone's telling me, you know, I'm having this trouble with sleep or I'm sleeping long or I'm sleeping short or I'm sleeping late or I'm sleeping early, they could wear something for three months and it'll just give me a really reliable uh, sleep-wake behaviour pattern over a three-month period in ways that I can then cut the data to look at in a whole range of, of different ways, run different math on the data to look at length and rhythms and, and those type of things. So that's, we're not far off that i think the technology in a sense of sense already exists for that it's more unlocking it really nice paper that's just been accepted in sleep from olivia walsh who's a um got a phd in mathematics from well, she draws those cartoons on twitter right yeah they're cool cartoons right exactly like yeah. she is awesome i'm, I'm a big fan <laughs> yeah. of, of olivia's because she did that in train app about um you know you put in where you're traveling to and it tells you how to adjust the light for jet lag but she's just Done, that um, wasn't jet lag rooster, was it? No. No, no. it was Entrain. Oh, Entrain, sorry, sorry. Entrain. En- you said it and I just I don't know why I said jet lag rooster in my head. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> Looking somewhere around. <laughs> yeah, but this, this paper was with the Apple Watch and they basically got the raw data signals for movement and heart rate out of the Apple Watch and then used a learning algorithm to develop their own open source um, program to then predict sleep. And they're able to accurately predict about 90-odd percent of epochs of sleep, only about 60-odd percent of epochs of wake, and that's, you know, one of the characteristics of activity trackers. You can't predict wake during sleep very well. 
but it's open source. And so that is where it needs to go because people are already wearing these sensors, but making it open and you know, opening it up to researchers to do make better algorithms so we can then use that data more effectively. I think that was the paper that Murray and Judah sent me um, this morning. Coincidentally, I'll be recording a podcast with Murray and Judah this Friday. Murray is from Luxembourg originally, but lives in Vancouver. Um, so, no, I completely lost my train at all. Speaking of N-Tran, I was going to say, oh yeah, so we're talk- it's, talking about those like we can, we can measure sleep over long term. What do you think about this weird, wonderful idea that I had? And people, a lot of people have laughed at me, which is great. What about like a robot in your room, right? That actually hovers. I'm talking about like Blade Runner stuff here, right? So you're lying down, this thing kind of hovers, nearly like a drone, but it's quiet or it's on a cable or I don't know, whatever. Moves around your room and measures everything that we can get in PSG without even touching it. Do you think that's possible? Sure. <laughs> why, why not? Because lots of the sensors exist. You know, if you think yeah. of what we measure in PSG, um, so ResMed owns that bedside technology that's the ultrasound that, you know, their S-plus device they yeah. sold in the US for a couple of years is that ultrasound device that could sit on your bedside table and uh, measure respiration just with ultrasound, so without touching you. And you could get heart rate and movement from that same device. You've got bed, it's got their ballistic cardiography device, the thing that goes under your, under your sheet mm-hmm. and measures just the impact of the heartbeat from your chest wall as a way of measuring your heartbeat. So those sensors are already there. And so we're not not far off. I don't know how you're going to get EEG unobtrusively. Yeah. That's going to be a bit of a challenge. So you need some biomedical scientists on this idea. Now, apart from the fact <laughs> that it would be a little bit creepy to have some robot hovering over you during sleep. How are you going to sleep in that situation? Well, some people might say it's creepy to have, like, um, you know, one of those Google things in your home or one of those other, what's, hey, what's, what's the word called? Not, not hey, Siri, but um, what do they call them, these things in your home? Yeah, the Amazon devices Amazon as well. Devices, yeah, they're a bit yeah. creepy, I think, anyway. So if you're going to have one of those, you might as well have something else flying around your bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all those devices, David, um, when you look at them in terms of validity, so all those type of devices, beddits, all those type of wearables, bed side technology, apps on your phone, all have a huge degree of variability, but all have huge marketing behind them. So general consumers find it very difficult to differentiate between one device to another, the validity of an app versus this. So with like the, the ResMed device, some people might say, well, what about my phone does that? I can download a free app and do that instead of buying one of these devices. Or, you know, I can buy a Fitbit and do that without buying one of these clinically validated devices. Um, What would you say to people who are looking around at different technologies like this um, who may want to assess their own sleep before they come to a sleep physician? Right, right. It's tough. Like, I I work in this area. I'm a bit of a geek about tech and measurement, and I can't keep up with it in terms of working out what's valid and what's not valid and what should you use and what shouldn't you use. So if you're not spending 24-7 thinking sleep like I am, yeah, good luck in, in trying to decipher that. So it's really hard. So largely the way I would approach it is most people have already got some type of device. So people who are interested in health have got some type of activity tracker or smartwatch or cycling data that, where they measure heart rate and power or running data where they've got, you know, they've got a something. And so just... In essence, I can try and then understand the strengths and the weaknesses of those relative devices and just work with them with the device they've already got. Whereas if someone's trying to buy something with the specific aim of measuring sleep, you know, I think you've just got to recognise everything's got its limitations. Um, 
definitely the term lipstick on a pig you could apply to this category because it's easy to make a really nice looking app that sits on top of data that is just completely useless and makes it you know gives it a face validity that isn't backed up by the science yeah and i think this is one of the challenges like is is there some great marketing out there by devices and they say to do all these different they make all these bold statements and and it's just based upon absolute zero science i mean look under the hood to use your terminology it's all referencing other papers that have got nothing got to do with the validity and like lipstick on a pig it's just this this smoke screen that's created and the general mm. consumer that may not be scientifically trained or even if they are have difficulty sifting through and differentiating between these because I have the same problem as well I get asked the question probably daily about devices and just on my own interest like yourself try and keep on top of the technology I'll go and look and even then I'm like well is this really the paper What's and you've got to keep searching and searching and searching and it's extremely difficult to kind of drag out the good devices that are available for consumers to use and then when they do get the good ones of course they're very expensive yep. and then people are like oh I don't really want to spend like you know $300 or 400 US or whatever it might be and um, what can I get that's better that's just cheaper and give me the same data and they kind of go oh you can get this but it's limitations sometimes for some people I've been recommending don't even worry about the technology just keep a sleep diary for a while to see what you think you sleep and how you feel because for some people just even doing that for a couple of weeks to be like oh actually sleep pretty good or even with that data, we can enter on and say, if they report, like self-report caffeine or training time, we can say, maybe don't go to the gym at 8 o'clock at night and train for two hours. Maybe shift that back a couple of hours. Or have you ever stopped caffeine after midday? Or these simple kind of interventions. And they can result in a dramatic increase in sleep without having to spend hundreds of dollars on measuring stuff. So, so I put the question to James Slater, who you know oh, yeah, from, yeah, yeah, from yeah. UWA. So I had interviewed him actually for about tracking sleep for the Sleep Talk podcast. And I put that question to him, okay, so James, you know, what should I be using for longitudinal sleep measurement in 2019? He said, yeah, pen and paper, sleep diary. Yeah, did he? <laughs> really? And that's rich because he's, he's a bit of a sleep tracker geek, James. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But there's a lot going for it. The visual sleep diaries, because if you collect them longitudinally over time, visually you can see patterns. It's a behavioural experiment, so the person filling it out can also see those same patterns and reflect on their behaviour. Yeah. Interesting. So when people collect their own sleep data, whether it be by wearable technology, stuff in their bedroom, self-reported data, get a referral, when people come through your doors and they typically overgo an overnight PSG either in the lab or at home, um, what's the most common type of sleep disorders you're seeing in the general population these days? So I see a biased or a skewed sample because I've got a particular interest in insomnia and so there is a bit of referral bias in terms of that's what comes to me. But if you look at the Australian population and you look at prevalence of sleep disorders, so historically we think as sleep physicians, mainly what you're going to see is sleep apnea. But in fact, that's probably about 5% of the population have got significant sleep apnea, whereas one in six Australian adults have got chronic insomnia. So it's actually more common than, insomnia is actually more common than sleep apnea. Uh, and so in my personal practice, yeah, I see quite a lot of insomnia. We did some interesting work both in our practice and in one of the public hospitals here in Melbourne looking at people presenting to sleep clinics and showed that two-thirds of people have actually got more than one sleep disorder. And so it's usually, okay, you've got a bit of sleep apnea, but you've also got circadian rhythm disturbance or you've also got some restless legs or you've got insomnia and you've got some restless legs or, you know, and so that's a challenge because if you try and design a very simple 
sleep service, you know, which would be a challenge for you in terms of an offering for industry is, okay, we'll weed out the ones who fit a sleep disorder category. Yeah. We've often got more than one sleep disorder rather than, which makes it hard to do in a sort of a flow chart sense yeah, yeah. and really means often then the care they need is going to be quite individualised, personalised care to tease out the relative contributions of a number of different sleep disorders. And multidimensional in some cases, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's quite interesting. So when you say a chronic insomnia, how, how are you defining insomnia? Is it around sleep onset insomnia, wake maintenance or early morning wake-ups or however? Yeah, so think of the DSM-5 definition of chronic insomnia or insomnia disorder, which is difficulty with either getting to sleep, staying asleep or waking earlier than you expect for three months or more. Um, most nights of the week, but the key is and impacting on daytime functioning mm -hmm. because that's where this disconnect is. There's no shortage of people who feel like they wake more than they wish they would or wake earlier than they wish they would, but function perfectly fine through the day. And that's what do we call that? And for me, I really would call that sleep dissatisfaction yeah, yeah. rather than insomnia because if you think of insomnia as it's got to have that impact on daytime functioning that's your one in six or your 16% of the Australian population. You think of the people who are tired and dissatisfied with sleep, that's your 40% or your four in 10. And so you've got that sort of, that's your gap. A whole lot of people dissatisfied with sleep, but only a subset of those are going to have the insomnia because they've got the impact on daytime functioning. Yeah. And you said it may have another, um, another sleep disorder as well. What's the most kind of common sleep disorder that would accompany insomnia? Oh, the whole range, whole but range, um, sleep apnea, because yeah. that's also pretty common in the community, um, particularly in the population you'd be dealing with, uh, shift work, uh, or not shift work disorder, but circadian rhythm disorders um, in people who are doing shift work or working irregular hours. Yeah. I find this an interesting one because you, it's interesting you said with the classification for three months or more. You know, I find that some people will say to me in an industry setting or athletes or, you know, we're doing a research project at the moment with some elite, oh, sorry, we're doing a research project at the moment with some master swimmers who are going to swim a 20 kilometer ultra swim. So they're going to, you know, basically we're going to track and measure their sleep for 16 to 20 weeks mm -hmm. before they do this event and see if there's a relationship between either, you know, your swimming ability and your performance and more so about is there a relationship between the sleep that you get and then on your time trials as the trainer goes on, but then, you know, is there actually an, um, an impact on your performance in the race itself? Which is kind of interesting because we see people sleep over over long term and see if this actually, you know, will, will help them, you know, sleep banking, so to say, or sleep optimization. And so many people already are saying about, oh, you know, I find really, I think I'm an insomnia, I can find it hard to get to sleep and blah, blah, blah. And you start looking at their individual data, you look at the nights and what's going on. And what's happening is people, are finding it difficult to sleep because we've got to be up somewhere at half four or five o'clock to go swimming. And so their habitual time of bed is 10 o'clock. Obviously, they're going to feel tired because they're getting up at sort of half or five. But then on days where there's no swimming, they're increasing that sleep up to seven hour, uh, up you know, seven to nine hours because they're waking up at six or seven o'clock next morning. So it's more like a function of their schedule yeah. um, for training or their work schedule that's driving the so-called insomnia, yeah, yeah, yeah. where it's more about their behavior about just in bedtime and adjusting lifestyle factors, again, it comes back to what's happening during the day, which seems to be able to magically eliminate insomnia yeah. that people say they have. Yeah. Yeah, so think of it as, although we, one of the terminologies we'll use is acute insomnia versus chronic insomnia, 
and really what, the way I think about that is acute insomnia is where you've got, you would predictably have disturbed sleep because of external factors that are somewhat time limited. So, so as an early morning flight, going to work early, yeah, for exam in a couple of days and you're yeah. a bit undercooked in terms of your study, yeah. you know, th- those types of things. Um, another way of thinking about it, think of, yeah, acute insomnia is your sleep gets thrown out by some external stimulus or external factor, that factor's removed, your sleep goes back to normal. Mm-hmm. Whereas you think of chronic insomnia is those external factors have passed, your sleep hasn't gone back to normal. But for me, the key is you've developed some perpetuating factors, which is your thinking and behaviour around sleep has now changed. So that for me is the, the characteristic of someone with chronic insomnia, is they think about sleep differently to a good sleeper and they behave around sleep differently to a good sleeper. So some examples would be, <laughs> I'll give you a few examples. So if I go out socially and I, people ask me, what do you do? If I say I'm a sleep specialist, Someone who's got insomnia goes, gee, that's really interesting, and asks me lots of questions. Someone who hasn't got insomnia just goes, geez, get a real job, and goes off to the bar to get another drink. It's like men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It's just this polar opposite approach. Um, And so you can hear that when you talk to people about sleep. If someone wants to engage in conversation about sleep, they want to talk about sleep, they've got sleep problems, guaranteed. Someone who doesn't want to engage in conversation about sleep, I don't think about it. It just happens. You know, they've, they've not had a sleep problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm laughing because my auntie was over from Ireland a few years ago and she's in her early 70s. And I was just finishing my PhD at UWF. And, you know, she was asking me some questions. She goes, well, what's this PhD? And I said, sleep. What do you mean sleep? I said, sleep. Like, sleep, like nighttime. She kept asking about 15 times. I was like, yeah, sleep, Alice. I said, you just, you know, sleep. That's ridiculous, she goes. Should people just sleep? Why would you want to research that? I said, well, there's conferences where thousands of people get together every year. Oh, that's ridiculous. You guys need to cop on to yourself. Like, as if, like, we were all just wasting our time. Right. So, so, so I was flying to, to Delhi recently to a conference in India, and I sat next to this lovely Punjabi lady, and she asked me where I was going. You know, I said, to, to India for a conference on sleep. And she's exactly the same. She goes, well, what are you doing that for? You know, I just do my yoga, I do my meditation, and I sleep. What's... <laughs> What, what's the problem? Right, she's never had sleep problems. <laughs> never had any problems, yeah. On that point about yoga and meditation, um, I've been kind of looking at this last probably year, year and a half, and I've had two Buddhist monks in my podcast talking about this, but I'm interested to hear your take on that because there is an increase in mindfulness, there is an increase in sort of Buddhist philosophy in, in sort of Western societies. Many more people are probably gravitating more towards Eastern philosophy and religion, where most people in the East are gravitating towards like Catholicism and Christianity. But many people are, are coming up to me and saying, you know, I, I've been doing some meditation, I've been doing some yoga, I feel so much better, sleeping so much better. Do you think they could have a place in terms of treating some of these sleep disorders, and particularly insomnia? Oh, absolutely. So we've done some work on mindfulness. So we're still trying to get it published, actually. It's under review, where we essentially took mindfulness-based stress reduction, so John Kabat-Zinn's sort of MBSR sort of program, um, with some collaboration with Jason Ong um, from Northwestern, um, melded that with some CBT, some sleep restriction stimulus control, and essentially came up with MBT, mindfulness-based therapy for insomnia. And in a six-week group sort of therapy paradigm, had people with insomnia go through that mindfulness training and look at their sleep quality outcomes, insomnia, those sort of things. And they actually did just as well, if not actually a bit better than traditional CBT. And so, yeah, mindfulness, I think, is a helpful add-on 
to CBT for insomnia. And the things, my sort of learnings, if I sort of step back and think, okay, well, what does it add? There's a few bits. So part of our learnings was about 50% of the effect is mediated by being mindful across the day, not the actual formal mindfulness practice or the formal meditation. And so part of the way I think about that is the formal meditation, particularly in the skill acquisition phase when I'm training someone in mindfulness, is you're carving out space to do the meditation. That's actually just space to practice thinking mindfully that you can then apply at other times across the day. So there's, you know, maybe there's not something magical about you know, the, just the time of meditation. It's that that creates the space to then feel more comfortable being rather than doing and just sitting with things that make you feel uncomfortable so that then at other times during the day you're more comfortable. So a few examples. So one of the stereotypes that doesn't fit everyone with insomnia by any stretch is that you know the twitchy, jumpy stereotype, people who can't sit still, could not be comfortable doing nothing for a minute or two. And part of that's values-driven. You know, we're all brought up. You've got to be busy and don't be idle and that type of thing. But to be a good sleeper, you've got to be comfortable just being with yourself in the dark and resting quietly at night. Yeah. If you can't be comfortable just with yourself doing nothing in the dark, you're going to get frustrated and start overthinking things yeah, yeah. Pr- pretty quickly. So then if there's never a time in your day when you stop and aren't doing anything, then good luck doing it in the dark at night because you're not going to be able to do it. Whereas if you actually practice stopping and doing nothing, essentially mindfulness-based meditation, then at a time in the night when that skill will be helpful, you'll have a bit more confidence yeah. in terms of putting it into place. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I've, I personally have never been able to get into a daily practice of meditation. I went through a great phase last year of going to yoga, but then when just when traveling and so on, I was unable to um, sort of maintain that. But I was going to yoga like at least three times a week, and I had a massive improvement in sort of how I felt, how I slept. Because um, I, I have probably trouble like falling asleep, so just because I'm so busy during the day, and again, classically, probably one of those people you're talking about. I wouldn't say I have insomnia, but I just have a, I, I need a long time to wind down. And a um, bit of a slow start in the morning, but need a lot of time to wind down at night. But anyway, I had a great, great guns with this sort of, uh, this yoga intervention I did. And I also did a silent retreat a couple of years ago, and I'm doing another one in about six weeks. I know people are laughing going, him, a silent retreat, but I actually really enjoyed it. I just do these weekend silent retreats. And I actually found the opposite. So the first night in the silent retreat, um, probably slept, I don't know, six and a half to seven and a half hours roughly. The next day, meditating all day, not doing much activity. And because I'm not a frequent meditator, I thought this is going to kill me, right? But actually, as the day went on, I just sat in, sat in the chair and sat on the ground and changed my poses and did some walking meditation. That night, I slept about four hours, woke up about half two in the morning and felt completely energized, like someone had, you know, stuck rocket fuel into me. So I remember that was, I just sort of had that, um, decoupling from the world with no electronic devices no noise pure silence in this remote kind of retreat it was in a monastery outside of Perth about 60 k's out so it was very peaceful so whether it was because I was in that environment that I got kind of energised from it or maybe I'm just naturally a short sleeper or maybe it was the fact that I just completely dealt with a lot of stress within a very short space of time um, so I think it's interesting that mindfulness whether it be over a long period of time or whether we do these retreat type things they can have a 
a kind of a fairly significant influence on how we sleep one way or the other. Um, so I'm kind of interested in the future, potentially, to run some studies looking at people on these silent retreats that go for three days, ten days, or even longer. Yeah. Um, do you know of any work that's happened on that? I couldn't yeah, find I can talk about a few things. So nothing formal. Yeah but a couple of things. So just reflecting as well. So I've been working in India for a good 10 years or so. So I've been there more than 20 times over the last 10 years and been involved in developing sleep medicine in India. You know, India is just a fascinating country and there's this generational shift that's going on in India. So the old Punjabi lady sat next to her on the plane, she's the old India. Traditional practice of yoga and meditation. They come to the hospital, they want to know what pranayama should I be doing to fix my problem, problem doctor. Um, but the, the Western India or the modern India is the university-educated, westernised Indian who is just highly competitive and has all the insomnia we get in the Western world. In fact, more so because they're just working hard and it's highly competitive environment and they've totally dropped the traditional practices of meditation and yoga. Now, the bit I didn't tell you is when I lived in Fiji, I lived in an Indian community. And so, because a lot of Fijian Indians, so so then learned to read and write Hindi, and then took Hindi in university and studied Sanskrit, and so I'm a bit of a dark horse, yeah, bit (laughs) bit of a dark horse. So this conference recently was in Nagpur, which is in central India, and Nagpur is the home of the RSS, which is like the think tank behind the BJP, which is this sort of nationalist Hindu movement that Modi is from. And so to have, to have come to town a Sanskrit scholar from Australia who's done research in meditation and yoga for insomnia, was a bit of a rock star in Nagpur. And you're whiter than I am. Yeah, right, exactly. So, but the paradox of a white guy going to India to teach them about the merits of meditation and yoga for insomnia, it was, it was pretty funny. <laughs> it is pretty, <laughs> that is pretty interesting. And so how, how was it received then? Did people enjoy it or were you looked at hey, well, it? Hey, well, no, so I've got to tell you, so elect- elections were on. And so when elections are on in India, the, the front page of the paper is all elections. I got the front page of the paper with a photo. So I thought I was doing oh pretty, pretty well. So we got sleep onto the front page of the paper. Uh, so then my other observation is I've been working with another group. So what used to be called Golden Door in the Hunter Valley that's now Alicia Wellness Retreat. So it's a sort of very nice health retreat sort of up in the Hunter Valley. We've been working with them for about 10 years as well. And so they traditionally have had a residential program where people would come for seven days at a time, a bit of a detox. And if you look at their clientele, you know, they're people who work professionally, um, feel like they're burning out, might go for five days or seven days as a retreat. And, you know, they'll do meditation, yoga, a whole range of things. But the, so I've been going there running either some CBT programs for sleep or now we've integrated sleep education into their sort of general program. But the bit that I've learnt there is I'll run the same program here in my practice that I'll run there. But here in my practice, someone's in their day-to-day life and they'll come in, they'll do it for an hour and they'll be thinking about how they're going to make dinner and get home to the kids. And where they go to Golden Door, they have given themselves permission to take time out to upskill themselves in things to change. And they're very open to change and very receptive to change. So what I can get done with people in a therapy sense on retreat versus in their normal role is totally different in terms of their ability to take on and integrate new skills. They don't necessarily sleep better. In fact, when they sleep much like your experience at the silent retreat, they actually sleep worse when they come. Um, And there's something about just changing the environment and shaking so many things up that everything just gets a bit a bit stirred up 
but yeah, certainly people are much more open to change. And the other thing I've learned is that people, we seem to be able to give ourselves permission to take time out to go on retreat, but we don't give ourselves permission to take time out every day for self-care and nurturing. And so my sort of way of thinking about that is you want to go on retreat for 20 minutes, 30 minutes every day as a health maintenance rather than go on retreat for five days because you've burnt out and you've desperately been hanging on for the last six months to finally go away to retreat. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I had a, a friend of mine on the podcast last year, um, Buddha Rikita, who's actually, you talk about you going to India, he's an Irish guy, um, PhD in chemistry, who sort of gave it all up to become a Buddhist monk. And he was living in Perth for a while, and now he's in Sri Lanka. And uh, he said he said something though similar, as he, on that same point about like, you know, I'm not creating space every day, but he goes, but if you do go on a retreat once a year, at least it's better than nothing. Sure. So at least you're creating that space to kind of work on yourself and so on. So he had a very interesting take on it um, when we spoke about mindfulness about, you know, kind of similar to your points. We tend to beat ourselves up a lot. We don't create that space, but we kind of kick ourselves in the ass the whole time. And so he was kind of coming back to these other principles like, are you getting up every day? Are you providing for yourself and your family? Are you trying to be, you know, slightly better? Are you killing somebody? Are you harming somebody? No. And if all those things are good, well, look, big picture-wise, you're not doing so bad, you know? And so, you know, we're so busy but trying to beat ourselves up every day about not doing this and not doing that. Because I find that people these days, especially this kind of, what I would say, the middle of the road person, middle class, middle income, sort of educated degree or masters, and it's like, okay, I want to get up in the morning, I want to train for a shotgun, I want to have two kids, both parents are working, they want to have the four-bedroom house in somewhere like Brighton here in Melbourne, or, you know, the, the house has to be grey, they want to entertain on a Friday and Saturday night, but they want to race the triathlon on a Sunday. Then they want to do meditation. They want to go and retreat. They want to be studying another degree part-time. They want to go to cooking classes. They want to catch up with their friends. They need to socialise and have coffee. And it's like, you've got you've got sleeping problems. Really? You can't do it all, guys, you know? So sometimes I think when they take these, these breaks for retreats, like you said, are giving themselves that permission to have made that space so they really want to focus on it. Because the good part about... I think those type of people are so driven during the normal work week that when they do go there to relax, they're actually nearly kind of driven about being relaxed and mm-hmm. doing the work. So that can be switched the other way. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. Um, I'd be interested to see if more work happens around this sort of showing maybe the efficacy and the benefit of mindfulness on sleep because, again, it's going to be coming back to the start of the conversation. It's going to be difficult on the measurement, the self-reported versus the objective and is there a benefit at the end? Yeah, and certainly that's what our results showed. So if you looked at measures that captured distress or measures that captured quality of life, big improvements. Mm-hmm. If you looked at measures that captured minutes of sleep, modest improvements. Yeah. And so, but that fits with really the outcome I'm after with managing a lot of sleep problems is less distress, better quality of life, yeah. less about the minutes of sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, 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 the objective has been met then. Yeah. Yeah. One last question, David, on this on this topic is the opposite of that. Some people go, well, I couldn't be bothered with retreats. I go on holidays once or twice a year. I went to Hawaii. You know, you said, Ian, to get, you know, at least eight hours of sleep on holidays, try to recover. But normally I sleep five or six hours at home and I get by okay. And then I go on holidays and I sleep eight hours every night. I didn't turn on the alarm clock like you said. I turned it off. I got up whenever. And after two weeks, I felt like shit. Why do you think that might be that people go on holidays, get extra sleep and actually feel worse? 
Yeah, so there's lots of different theories. So one of my sort of theories or ways I'd try and conceptualise that is you've taken the foot off the accelerator and the the framework that your or your comparator is when you're in your day-to-day life, foot's flat to the floor, you are on that edge of the most nervous energy you can possibly run on before it boils over and the wheels fall off. Mm. You're right on that right on that edge and anytime you're not right on that edge just feel slow and not exciting and not edgy and not on the you know not it's quite addictive that feeling of that high nervous energy doesn't mean it's sustainable it doesn't mean it's healthy but it feels good and so you go on holidays and you pull back a bit take the foot off the accelerator it's just like you know it's like the the air's gone out of the tires in some respects and so why do you think then people would feel feel worse is it because potentially they're making up on lost sleep that they've accrued over time or so there'll be a bit of that but it, whether it's just lack of the energy they're kind of bored and that's a substance right for it. right so i think it's both so you, you know as you know sleep debt's the best kind of debt you can have because you don't have to pay it back one to one you know you get a dis- yeah, yeah. discount on, yeah. <laughs> on on the payback <laughs> and so a couple of days of recovery sleep and that sleep recovery is done you know, it's not that recovery sleep. But that fits for me with that hypothesis of taking the foot off the accelerator. So they've, they're running at as much voluntary sleep deprivation as they can get away with and have voluntarily turned up that nervous energy, which in turn means your higher sympathetic nervous system drives, so you're going to be able to generate less minutes of sleep. And then you take the foot off the accelerator and there's less of that sympathetic drive so the brain's going to generate more minutes of sleep yeah. before that nervous energy sort of kicks in and wakes you up. And so I don't see it as being sleep inertia, overslept, you know, those type of terms. I just see it as, yeah, it, it can feel flat. You take your foot off the accelerator and it just, yeah, come on. You know, what? Yeah, what's next? What's next, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, look, Dave, thanks very much for your time to save and really appreciate it. If anybody wants to follow you, because I know you're active on different so, sort of uh, social media platforms, um, I don't see you getting into any good Twitter debates, which is good, I suppose. I, I get drawn in. Um, another story. Um, I've had to block a few people lately. <laughs> um, but you also have your podcast as well. Do you want to let our listeners know about that? Because I want to push some listeners over there who might be sick of listening to me. Yeah, I'll sure. So on Twitter, I'm at uh, just at David Cunnington. Uh, I post something on Facebook five days a week, uh, a curated sort of research thing uh, on sleep. Yeah. At, uh, similar, Dr. David Cunnington uh, on Facebook. And then the podcast is called Sleep Talk, Talking All Things Sleep, and it's on all the podcast uh, distribution channels. A little bit different to Anne's podcast, talk a little bit more about sleep, different sort of sleep disorders and sleep topics, and co-host that with Dr. Moira Junger, who's a psychologist. Uh, We're up to episode 47 uh, published and just doing sort of 48, 49 at the moment. Yeah. Mine's a bit more rambling, my podcast, which, yeah, suits me because I ramble anyway. Um, David's is far better orchestrated and edited and professional than our one is. But I do appreciate people listening to my guff every week or so, so that's great. Uh, David, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it and um, hope to have you on soon. Pleasure. So that was Dr. David Cunnington. First of all, thanks to David for providing me with his own Zoom equipment for recording the podcast in his office in East Melbourne. And thanks to David for allowing us to record in his office after hours as well. I was on a short business trip, 48 hours in Melbourne. And, um, you know, David's quite a busy guy. So I do appreciate making the time to record that podcast and uploading this episode to Dropbox for us to 
be able to do the editing afterwards. So as a quick reminder, you can contact us at ianduniken at sleepforperformance.com.au. Go over to the webpage, sleepforperformance.com.au. And uh, yeah, any questions, just fire them through. And um, we might have a Q&A session coming up soon on the um, on the podcast. And we're looking at actually having a few free webinars next year as well that you can participate in also. Okay, until the next episode, sleep well. <laughs>